This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Good evening. This is Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show, a show all about health. Your health is your wealth and leads to a longer, happier life and even better relationships. Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, and yes, even sexual. That's the cue to put the kids to bed because we always uncover what lies beneath the covers here. Listener discretion is advised. I do have a passion for evidence-based health information to guide you so that the life you lead is the best it can be. My aim is to provide you with up-to-date health information so so that you know there are options for treatment for whatever ails you. This show, however, is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor. Okay, time to put the kids to bed, grab your lover or wife of 50 years, hunker down and listen to some health talk with a little bit of sex thrown in. Lots on the program tonight from measles and misinfodemics to a new olive oil study that will get you looking in the right direction. My niece Katie joins me later on in the program to talk about a new app developed by Anna Rawls called Find Sisterhood. We definitely need a better sisterhood to deal with the likes of... Brett Kavanaugh, Gian Gameshi, who's reared his narcissistic head recently. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And imagine if you could discover a power source in your heart bigger than anything you ever imagined. We're talking passion tonight on the Sunday Night Health Show. If you have any questions at all for me or my guest, feel free to give me a call. The number is one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. 98. Or you can always email me at nursetalk at hotmail.com. So as I said, we have lots to talk about on the program tonight. First, I want to say good evening to Tim. How are you? <laughs> nice to have you here behind the boards there. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for being there. Okay. First, we've got lots to talk about, uh, lots to cover, uh, something I haven't even mentioned because I want to talk about this first, this email. I do love your emails. Don't let this be a turnoff. I happen to prefer the ones that uh, have a slightly nicer tone, but I do believe that feedback is a gift, and uh, so I am taking this as feedback, and I do love uh, the the opening here, the greeter, Ms. Nurse. <laughs> Finally, somebody's got that right. I'm emailing you regarding your Sunday Night Hell show that airs on Ched Edmonton. I am senior, and I have not heard one show that you have directed to seniors. It seems that you cater only to the young special interest groups. I couldn't believe my ears when you were counseling extramarital sex. Maybe you are not aware that there are seniors out there too, and maybe you could direct one of your shows to us. Frank. Let's be frank, Frank. Um, Thank you, Frank. Really appreciate the feedback. And because you have uh, provided me with that feedback, I do want to cover a number of issues. You know, to be honest with you, you perception is reality. And quite frankly, sometimes, no pun intended there, um, (laughs) sometimes I think that I'm not catering to young, the young and the restless, young special interest groups. But I often think in part because many of the issues that I cover, including extramarital affairs, they they don't discriminate. I cover all decades. In fact, I can think of five patients over right off the bat, over the age of 80, all having extramarital affairs. One fellow was 84 years old. He came to basically confess to me. I think he thought I was a priest, not a nurse. And, uh, 
he wanted to tell me that he had been having affairs for his entire marriage of 50 years. And should he tell his wife at that stage of the game, at the stage of the game where she was enjoying her grandchildren? So a lot of these issues that I discuss, that I, uh, where I see patients in my clinical practice or on, online, um, you know what? They, they commonly occur for people in their 30s and 40s, erectile dysfunction. We're seeing a lot more younger men having that, but definitely older men have that as well, especially after prostatectomy or urinary incontinence. It's, it's marketed as a little old lady's uh, condition, but it's not. That can actually affect women after they've had a baby. It can affect a man after he's had a, a radical prostatectomy. It can, men can have prostatitis. Uh, that can lead to uh, leakage of urine, urinary urgency, frequency, overactive bladder. That affects people of all ages. So perhaps that's the first. I'm not trying to be defensive here because I am going to cover a lot of the issues that, especially on this program tonight, you heard it here, um, that uh, a lot of the issues that are common uh, for the senior population. And you know what? This is important for younger people as well because younger people need to prepare for their senior health. Uh, People, nobody thinks they're going to get there. But you know what? God willing, you all will. Uh, Better to look look at the grass from up above than look at the grass from another place. Uh, An old Irish expression. Uh, and you know what? Getting older can seem daunting. And you know what? Sometimes the gray hair comes early for a lot of people. Wrinkles, what, where you, you know, what you look like. A lot of people focus on the appearance. But I was telling some, somebody at a recent event or a few people that I'd had this email. And uh, so they were saying, well, what advice would you give uh, to senior people? What, what is your, you know, what's your conventional wisdom? What is the best thing? And, and to be honest with you, the thing that hits me first is mobility issues. And so mobility issues, it's, it's so important that you can actually be limber later in life. And what is that related to? How do you become limber later in life? You remain active, number one, but also weight is critical and keeping your weight down. I know I'm a little bit of the weight Nazi and actually some senior people have issues keeping weight on. So nutrition is going to be one of the subjects that I will be covering uh, tonight. You know, seniors account for 12% of the world's population. And by 2050, it's going to increase to more than 22%. Over a fifth of the world's population will be considered senior. Many seniors have chronic health conditions. Cognitive health, cognition is a, is a very important uh, subject area of seniors' health. And guess what? You got to get busy in order to uh, keep your uh, mental capacity sharp because I am going to tell you a little bit about one activity in particular uh, that you may or may not have guessed by now um, that's related to that will help to keep your cognitive health in, um, you know, in, in gear, in, in uh, help you to be, um, to think easily, like just like I'm not doing right now, <laughs> uh, to learn and remember. And the most common cognitive health issue facing the senior population is dementia, the loss of the cognitive functions of thinking and learning and remembering. It's not just about where did I leave my keys It's in, and where did I leave my car. <laughs> has, has that not happened to you before? You see a sea of silver SUVs and you think, which one is mine? <laughs> you can be 40 and that can happen to you. But these issues 
uh, occur later in life more commonly. And so is it dementia? Is it Alzheimer's? Is it a different form of dementia? So I'll be covering different types of dementia in this program and upcoming programs as well. So I'm going to put a little bit more focus because Frank has asked me. And so I'm going to put a little bit more focus on that. Also mental health. According to the World Health Organization, over 15% of adults over the age of 60 suffer from a mental health disorder. And one of the most common amongst seniors is depression. And this occurs in 7% of the elderly population. This is often underdiagnosed and undertreated. You know what's helpful for that is exercise. Again, getting back to keeping your weight down, nutrition, uh, keeping your uh, ability to be limber, moving about, staying active, staying engaged, being with people. Relationships are critical at this stage of life. Older adults, it might surprise you, account for over 18% of deaths by suicide. Depression can be a side effect of chronic health conditions and managing those conditions um, can help. So it's important to promote that you live a healthy lifestyle and um, also gain support from your friends and your family. Um, falls and fractures is another big issue facing seniors, and that's related to urinary incontinence. Something that surprised me was that 25%, according to the CDC, their division of oral health, 25% of adults over the age of 65 no longer have their natural teeth because of cavities and tooth decay. And that can lead to difficulty. Again, maintaining a healthy diet, it can affect your self-esteem and other health conditions. You know, a lot of people live quite, you know, we're living uh, healthier these days. And, you know, sometimes you maybe have maybe have lost your spouse and you maybe want to get out onto the dating scene, even at the age of 65 or 70. Um, but not having your teeth will impact how you feel about about that and definitely may impact your sexual self-esteem. Substance use and abuse, typically with alcohol or drugs, it's more prevalent among seniors than you may realize. And according to the National Council on Aging, the number of older adults with substance abuse problems is expected to double to 5 million by 2020. Uh, that is a significant number. And we have a, a, about 10% here in the uh, relative um, in Canada to the, what, what the stats are in the U.S. Um, a lot of people don't associate substance abuse with the elderly, so therefore it's often overlooked and missed in those medical checkups. And oftentimes people lie about how much alcohol they consume as well. So we talked a little bit about urinary incontinence, not a great subject, nor is constipation. Uh, I hate to end this on such a down note, um, but I'll be covering these subjects. And if you have any other questions at all about any of these subjects or your health or senior health or what can you can do to live a longer, happier, and better life, email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. You can always give me a call anytime. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. I am Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I'm a registered nurse, a nurse continence advisor, and a sexual health educator. I'm uh, pretty busy on, (laughs) I said on, pretty busy on social media as well. And recently I saw this cartoon that struck me really funny. I hope I don't offend anybody, but there was this woman, uh, this older woman, and she was looking in the mirror and she was trying on clothes and her husband was sitting in a chair 
and the chair was turned around. This is a little cartoon drawing. And, and she said, oh, I look so awful. I'm getting so old and I'm so fat. And she said, tell me something nice about me. Tell, give me a compliment. Tell me something that's good. And the husband said, your vision is perfect. <laughs> I'm laughing because Tim's laughing. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was cute. Some people thought maybe might think it's mean, but anyway, it's actually as I'm laughing at him as much as I'm laughing at, at the joke about her because obviously the guy is totally clueless, but this happens a lot. And uh, so it's important that you feel good about yourself no matter what age you are, especially as you get older. <laughs> anyway, to all of those seniors out there. Uh, Frank included. But I want to talk a little bit about sex on the brain, because what's the one thing that you lose as you get older besides your looks <laughs> and your body and everything else, your erections, the whole thing? Um, you also lose your cognitive uh, health. And so frequent sex may have cognitive benefits. So this is for all ages. Uh, the, the one, there is one problem with it, and I will give you that uh, problem at the end of it, but it may enhance your cognitive performance on particular tasks. And this, there's been studies on rats, which, you know, that, you know, not those rats, uh, the rats in the labs, um, but, and also humans in the last decade. And, and a lot of these studies are pointing to this conclusion. And there's a new study in the archives of sexual behavior. And, um, that has accumulated all of this evidence. And so one of those studies is a 2010 study, and that was in journal, uh, plus one, And that discovered a link between sexual activity and neuron growth in male rats, specifically rats that were permitted to have sex daily, who over a two-week period demonstrated more neuron growth than rats that were only allowed to have sex once during the same amount of time. So there's a little, maybe a little suggestion that daily sex, guys, would be good. I'm sure we'd have no problem recruiting for that research study if we did have that study in for men. (laughs) Anyway, um, the next study was published in the journal. Journal Hippocampus, and that also focused on male rats, and that found that daily sexual activity was not only associated with the generation of more new neurons, but also with enhanced cognitive function. And so the research on humans has also yielded some similar findings. A 2016 study published in Age and Aging looked at how the sexual practices of nearly 7,000 adults between the ages of 50 and 89 related to their performance on a number sequencing task that measured executive functions such as problem solving, organization, and also a word recall task, which measured memory ability. And it turned out that both the men and the women who engaged in, get this, any kind of sex over the past year, (laughs) they're desperate here, had higher scores on the word recall test. And for the men only, being sexually active was linked to better performance on the number sequencing task. There was also a 2017 study published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, and that examined how sexual activity was linked to performance on a common memory task in a sample of 78 heterosexual women between the ages of 18 to 29. The scientists looked at whether their frequency of sexual intercourse was associated with memory while controlling for several other factors, such as grade point average, menstrual cycle phase, menstrual cycle phase oral contraceptive use, and the length of their relationships. The results revealed that the women who engaged in more frequent sexual intercourse had better recall of abstract words on the test. So there's a case here for having uh, more sex. But there was also a study in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. It was 6,000 adults 
over the age of 50, and they explored how sexual frequency was associated with performance on two episodic memory tasks administered two years apart. Participants who had sex more often had better performance on the memory test. And it's also worth noting that emotional closeness during sex was linked to better memory performance as well. But it's also important to note that memory performance declined for everybody over the course of the study, and being sexually active did not prevent this decline. We're all going to lose, uh, we're all going to suffer cognitive decline as time goes on. And while sex is linked to a higher baseline for memory performance, it doesn't necessarily prevent that cognitive decline that we all will experience whether or not we are sexually active. Obviously, more research is needed in this area, but um, when I was speaking to the people who asked me the night what I would advise for older people, I have to say what did come to mind was weight because it's associated with mobility and the ability to move around. And and I see it in my clinical practice because they're getting up on the bed and, and sometimes it's really hard for them to do that or to move around. It's really hard for them. But, you know, uh, on second thought, I after reading... Reviewing these research studies, which um, there's really a paucity of them, but even there's a little bit, I would say that having a healthy sex life is... um is a good thing. Um, and so that's something to engage in. And I get so many emails from patients of all ages, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And I'm going to read some to you in a little bit. Um, how can they have more sex in their relationship? How can they get that intimacy? How can they get that connection? How can they talk their spouses into having sex with them? Well, maybe you might want to point out that it is good for brain function and brain health. And um, the other thing that's good for brain health, which I'll be covering as well, is for everybody. And I was talking to a neuroscientist the other day, and he reminded me that at night, uh, when you sleep, your CSF is bathed in... um, Uh, It bathes your brain, and so it repairs. Anyway, we're going to be talking more about this. I am Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. So nice to be here with you this evening. It's always my pleasure to host the show. Somebody said to me, do you ever get tired of going in on Sunday nights uh, to do the show? And I, did, they, did you ever feel like, oh, I didn't feel like doing this tonight? And I can honestly say in six and a half years, the answer is no. I absolutely love coming in here every Sunday night and uh, educating about some of my favorite subjects and, and one of my favorite subjects. Um, but this is not one of my favorite subjects. Anti-vaxxers. <laughs> That's really what this is about. Uh, Vancouver Coastal Health issued a warning to anybody who had attended the Skookum Festival held in Stanley Park. There were hundreds of thousands of people there um, because somebody had uh, been noted there to who had attended had a highly infectious virus known as measles, which is a childhood infection it, that had been quite common in years past, but it's almost always preventable with a vaccine. Uh, the symptoms are fever, dry cough, runny nose, sore throat, inflamed eyes or conjunctivitis. And you might get tiny white spots with bluish white centers on a red background found inside of the mouth on the inner lining of the cheek. We call this complex spots. There's also a skin rash made up of large flat blotches that often flow into one another. 
And the infection occurs in a sequential stage, in sequential stages over a period of about two to three weeks. There's the infection and incubation period. That's the first 10 to 14 days after you've been infected. Uh, the measles virus will incubate during that period. You typically will not have signs or symptoms of measles during this time. Then you'll get some nonspecific signs and symptoms, and they typically begin with a mild to moderate fever, and it may be accompanied by a persistent cough, a runny nose, inflamed eyes, and a sore throat. It's a mild illness that may last a few days. The illness moves on to an acute phase, and, and you may get the rash, which consists of, well, you'll get the rash, which consists of small red spots, and some of them are slightly raised. There's spots and bumps and tight clusters. And they give this, your skin like a splotchy red appearance. And the face is the first to break out. And then the, the rash will spread down to the arms and the trunk. And then over the thighs, the lower legs, and the feet. And your fever will rise sharply. And it can go as high as 104 to 105.8 or 40 to 41 Celsius. And the measles rash gradually recedes, fading at first from where it started from the face and, and then from the thighs and the feet. And a person with measles can spread the virus to others for about eight days, starting four days before the rash appears and ending when the rash has been present for four days. So this is a very serious illness, and there's a whole lot of information um, on the Internet uh, that that the anti vaxxers have uh, gotten a hold of. And, and I think you might be surprised uh, to find out uh, where this actually came from. But um, one thing I saw when I was doing uh, the research around this, I was sad to see, and I didn't really ever know this, if you've ever read the book James and the Giant Peach by Raul uh, Raul Dahl, his daughter died of uh, encephalitis as a complication of measles. Uh, this is a very serious illness, and um, but but there are some people who are are not vaccinating their children about uh, for um, measles MMR, um, and and so this can cause a lot of trouble. And so you're actually putting your children at tremendous risk. They can also lose their hearing. This is another complication of of measles. And I'm not sure if parents realize that these two things, that they would be um, against, uh, they would still be against vaccinating their children. But um, it's extremely, extremely sad um, when you see these complications that occur in measles. Um, and there's one of the risk factors, of course, is being unvaccinated and also traveling internationally. If you travel to developing countries where measles is more common, you're at higher risk of catching the disease and also having a vitamin A deficiency. If you don't have enough vitamin A in your diet, you're more likely to have more severe symptoms and complications. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, some of the complications can be ear infection, but that can go on to um, you can lose your hearing. You can get bronchitis, laryngitis, or croup. Uh, measles may lead to inflammation of your larynx or inflammation of the inner walls that line the main air passageways of your lungs. 
pneumonia is a common complication of measles. People used to die of pneumonia before there were antibiotics. And people with compromised immune systems can develop an especially dangerous form of um, pneumonia that is sometimes fatal. About one in a thousand people with measles will develop a complication known as encephalitis. And that may occur right after measles, or it might not occur until months later. And that is basically an infection of the brain. Uh, If you're pregnant, you need to take special care to avoid measles because the disease can cause preterm labor, low birth weight, and maternal death. So the ways to prevent measles... Uh, If someone in your house has measles, you want to isolate them because measles is highly contagious, as I said, from about four days before to four days after the rash breaks out. People with measles shouldn't return to school or work, um, uh, activities where they interact with other people during this period. Um, And you may also be necessary to keep those non-immunized people, siblings, for example, if they are non-immunized, away from the infected person. And a way to prevent is uh, vaccination. Be sure that anyone who's at risk of getting the measles who hasn't been fully vaccinated receives the measles vaccine as soon as possible. This includes anyone born after 1957 who hasn't been vaccinated, as well as infants over the age of six months. And the first dose for infants is usually given between between 12 and 15 months, and the second dose typically given between the ages of four and six years. It's the MMR um, vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella, Um, because this can, you know, spread widely across communities. Um, Since the introduction of the measles vaccine, it basically has been eliminated in North America, even though not everyone has been vaccinated. And this effect is known as the herd immunity. But herd immunity may now be weakening a little bit because of a drop in vaccination rates. So the rate of measles in the U.S. recently jumped from an average of 60 cases a year to 205 cases every year. So steady vaccination rates are important because soon after vaccination rates decline, measles begin to come back. And, you know, you might be interested to know that um, that whole um, measles or vaccine vaccinations associated with autism actually came about from a scientist who was filing a patent um, with the U.S. Patent Office um, about a competitive uh, vaccination. And so he is actually the one who... um, who actually started this whole um, rumor about um, that vaccinations caused um, autism. And and so that has been taken, um, you know, it, it because of the internet, um, that has just been, you know, just it's, Got it, it has been a virus in and of itself. Um, so I don't think that if people realized that, um, how that actually started, how uh, this, the fact that a scientist who was filing a patent for a new measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, and he led that campaign to link the competing MMR vaccine to autism, so the one that is currently um, given to children. So the article he published is now widely recognized to have been the result of serious financial conflicts of interest, unethical data, uh, especially 
at an ethical data collection, the lead author paid children for their blood samples during his son's 10th birthday party. And also fraud was associated with um, that the research that he did. This doctor's medical license has been revoked, um, but the virus his article produced has continued to infect our information channels. And this fraudulent study has been referenced as a basis for health hoaxes related to the flu vaccines, misinformed advice to refuse the provision of vitamin K to newborns for the prevention of bleeding, and modifying evidence-based immunization schedules. So might be interesting um, to know. I wonder if the anti-vaxxers know that. And what has spread this disease? Miss Infodemics has. I'm going to be talking about that when I come back. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I don't have a joke to start out this one, (laughs) this segment. Anyway, um, I could think one, but... Uh, you know, in, in delivering, the delivery is the most important aspect of a joke. Nonetheless, if you don't land it, forget it. Uh, this, I think, is, uh, is a future career uh, for somebody, misinfodemics. And it, it, I'll give you an analogy. In London in the summer of 1858, there was a, a situation because the weather was so hot, uh, they had a consequence uh, known as the Great Stink. And there was a horrible stench that emanated from this horrible pale brown fluid that flowed along what was once poetically known as the Silver Thames. The politicians uh, used chloride of lime to mask the smell. It was the first time they had been incentivized to take action because their offices were right in front of where this brown fluid uh, flowed. And... At that time, the close living quarters and poor hygiene were contributing to a rise in illnesses and epidemics. But residents of what was then the largest city in the world, London, believed it was the unpleasant smell that directly transmitted contagions such as the plague, chlamydia, and cholera. But it wasn't. Their belief is known as the miasma theory of disease transmission. It had some truth to it, but it wasn't precise. It's not the smell of stagnant, contaminated water, but it is the actual contaminated water is the perfect breeding ground for microorganisms that cause waterborne disease. So it's the germs in the water, not the stench, that is really the problem. At the, and at the time, scientists had very few technologies to understand the difference between these two. So they were focusing on the wrong Problem. So they didn't have good solutions because they didn't really have the exact problem, which is what do I say all the time in your relationship? You got to find out what the problem is in order for you to fix it. Um, I have a great email I'm going to read after this. But today, disease also spreads through Facebook. and Google results. And it's not because the droplets from a sneeze or particles that linger in the air when we forget to cough properly into our elbow. Um, But digital health misinformation is having increasingly catastrophic impacts on physical health. There were actually Twitter bots that were sharing content that contributed to positive sentiments about e-cigarettes. Now, there's a big issue in the States around those jewel cigarettes, and, and they've actually been brought into Canada. And Health Canada is actually looking for help to 
um, to to ensure that these are not marketed to teenagers. So there, and also the FDA is looking into whether they whether that company Juul um, that has. Uh, their e-cigarettes that have nicotine in them and whether they did in fact market those to um, kids, to teenagers, because they're wildly popular in high schools. They are addictive, and but they are also a way for many people have claimed that they've been able to reduce their nicotine intake. But nonetheless... Uh, Twitter bots are often hired, so you don't really know, um, you know, what's behind uh, the internet. You know, if you if you look at a dress online, honestly, you know, within a second you get you know another um, million dresses, you know, advertisement um, in in front of you. Anyway, online um, in West Ac- Africa, there was a situation where online health misinformation added to the Ebola death toll in New South Wales, Australia. Where, there, where the spread of conspiracy theories about water fluoridation run rampant, children suffering from tooth decay are often hospitalized for mass extractions at higher rates than in other regions where fluoridation exists. I've heard that one myself. Um, people are fearful of fluoridation, but prevents tooth decay and cavities. And once again, what's important for you as you age? Your teeth are critical, not only for chewing food, but for that flashing that pearly white smile. Um, and also, as I mentioned in the previous sec- segment, um, new cases of measles. We've had new cases of measles here in Vancouver, and we've had them all around the United States as well. Chicago, Boston, Portland, Michigan. And there's a curiosity as to whether there's reemergence of these preventable diseases is related to a drop in immunization rates due to declining trust in vaccines, which is in turn tied to misleading content encountered on the Internet. There are some tools and technologies that can help identify where and how health misinformation spreads. And But we realize we, we are getting more and more information that health information we encounter online can motivate decisions and behaviors that can actually make us more susceptible to disease. I cannot tell you how many times people come up with a medical myth that they think uh, – you know, is going to help them. (laughs) Oftentimes you find them in beautifully marketed bottles of herbs and supplements and and that kind of thing, Um, and that they think it's going to cure everything that they have. Um, But this, um, the spread of of a particular health outcome or disease that is facilitated by viral misinformation is known as misinfodemics. And, you know, this is a, a career. You know, I, there's a number of physicians online on Twitter. Dr. Jen Gunter is one. Timothy Caulfield is another. John Jonathan Hyslop is another um, that are debunking these myths. And um, so it's really important that the evidence, that you have the evidence behind this and you not believe everything you see online because it actually can make you sicker. Okay, so I do want to read, get to an email, because you can call me too, one 399 if you have a question about your relationship like this lady did, or you can email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. So dear Maureen, I saw your TEDx talk and listened to your interview on Billionaire's Lifestyle. Um, so I, in my TEDx talk, I spoke about um, the hormone PEA, which actually, you know, uh, 
goes, you know, travels through your blood vessels at the beginning of a relationship for like 18 months to four years approximately. So she's referring to that. It's a hormone that accounts for the excitability um, when you're in a new relationship. So first of all, if I knew the answer to this question, I'd be a billionaire myself. How do you reproduce PEA for men? (laughs) My husband's grandma continuously gave me bags of romance historical fiction novels for the purpose of PEA and repopulating their little town. Is there anything similar for men? Music, maybe? My husband watched a lot of porn in college and assumed his wife would look like a porn star forever. I am not. Even when I was size four, he felt I was fat. So now that I'm 51... So I definitely agree that losing weight and working on financial and somehow fixing the who is in control of the family when he hasn't been involved for 21 years and now wants to take over everything. How do I prioritize how to make him interested? He was always scared he would not be successful at sex, even though with our naive knowledge, his instincts are good. Although he is a horrible kisser, which is a big problem for me. Our first kiss, I thought I was trying to kiss a shark with a full mouth, open, showing teeth. Ugh. (laughs) Maybe this guy should have lost his teeth. Anyway, I would have to encourage him. Now his testosterone level is low, weight high, gut issues from ulcerative colitis along with work stress. And he says he doesn't think about sex. He is impotent. He loses erection after a few seconds, even with pills. He claims after vasectomy this started, but I recall jokingly, privately, 24 years ago before our first child, that I may have to take a lover to have sex at all. This isn't the typical email from a woman, but nonetheless. So I guess I know how to reduce the stress and weight. How do I get the intimacy going while working through the solutions? I am the adventurous one. I am the initiator. And yes, between the incestish experiences as child and years of school church preaching that sex is wrong, I struggle thinking I am unworthy of love and sex. And I love sex. At least the heavy petting from boyfriends before marriage. Ugh, what a mess. I'm embarrassed I'm even writing these things to you. I haven't told anyone. And I'm an... an, I'm an insecure person. I guess that is how desperate I am. Where do I turn for help? Whoa, there's a lot in that. You know, it's tough to, um, you know, it's having the conversation, talking about um, the intimacy in the life or the lack thereof. This couple appears to be getting on to those senior years. Again, living healthily together, maybe going on a nutrition plan, my all-in diet, if you want to get all-in. Um, can help you to drop weight. A lot of guys drop 25, 30 pounds in a month um, on it. Uh, Also, just talking about the intimacy, um, you know, there's there's just so much in this that it's hard, but through the next few weeks, I'll be discussing aspects of this um, email. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.